Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Hello, David Hepworth here, welcoming you to a slightly unusual, somewhat self-promotional installment of Word in Your Ear. This is because I've just published a book called A Fabulous Creation, which is about the era of the long-playing record. And to launch it, uh, we had an event at Foyle's excellent bookshop in Charing Cross Road, Uh, in front of uh, an audience and uh, that meant Mark Allen and I got to transfer our usual cross-talk act across town to this new environment so what you're going to hear is about 45 minutes plus questions about uh, the book A Fabulous Creation and the LP record we did it as usual with visuals and so I hope you'll forgive anything that is not immediately clear I'm sure you'll be acute enough to fill in the gaps. And, uh, okay, here we go. Where are we going, Excellent. Very nice to see you. Thanks for coming. I brought a present for everybody. Marvellous. He's got a present. He's got some records with him. Um, yes, the long playing record. Well, I was, um, I was 15 years old when this came out. I don't know if anybody has a copy of this. It is unmistakably Frank Zappa's Hot Rats. I bought it. Well, you bought it? Good. Good. 1972. 1972. There we are. OK. Well, yeah, I, and I absolutely love this. This cost me a ruinous 34 shillings, <laughs> which I think in those days you probably the same amount of money would have bought your Ford Anglia. It seems so incredibly expensive. They were so expensive records. And they were so expensive, but they were so precious. And they meant so much. And I absolutely loved and adored this record. And what I used to do, and I don't know if anybody else did this, it's embarrassing to share, isn't it? I used to, when I used to go out and see mates of mine, I would carry it with me down the street. I just literally carry it. Anybody else do this? I would carry the record with me. Excellent, Viv, you're here. And, uh, see, I call this man Viv Stanchel for obvious reasons. And I would carry it with me because it used to, I felt it said something about me. I, suppose. It felt, I felt it said that I was, I was hip and that I was cool and I was enigmatic and that I was suffused with a raw animal sexual magnetism. <laughs> and this point is taken up by our author tonight, and he brilliantly extends it on the back of the book here, where he says that albums have become the mark of sophistication, a measure of wealth, an instrument of education, a poster saying things you dare not say yourself, a means of attracting the opposite sex, and for many, the single most desirable object in our lives. And I should imagine, actually, that part of the reason you're here is that you agree with him. He's never wrong. Please welcome David Hepworth. <laughs> Tremendous. <laughs> oh. And, Dave, this book is, this book is actually is dedicated to people who knew how it felt to carry an album down the high street. So which, well, give me an example of an album you might have carried. I would probably have carried... Frank Zappa. Hot Rats is a, yeah. a kind of classic case, isn't it? Because you know, it's just an immensely confident-looking thing. 
isn't yeah, it? It you sends know? out a certain signal. It sends out a signal. You know, and I can remember, I can remember first uh, clapping eyes on that record in um, in the unlikely, in the unlikely environment of W. H. Smith's in Dewsbury, Yorkshire, during a vacation from college, and thinking that is an immensely cool thing. And so I was persuaded by the cover long before I was persuaded by the record, you know, or by the, the sound of it. And I think that's, that's one of the things that I kind of wanted to get at in the book, you know, because, you know, my interest in, in music history, you know, I think I'm as interested in the history as I am in the music. And, and I'm interested in the history from the point of view of, of how people behaved with these things and around these things. And I think... I think these are things that, that get lost in the kind of contemporary obsession with vinyl. Yeah. You know, when you get young people, I don't know if anybody's ever had this, you get younger people come around to your house and go, you've got a lot of vinyls. Yeah, vinyls in the plural. Where did that vinyls. appalling yeah. expression <laughs> come from? It doesn't really matter what they are, it's just as long as they're on vinyl. <laughs> and right. uh, well, actually, our youngest daughter, sharing a flat in Clapton, recently said to me, have you got any spare vinyls? Because her flatmate had got a record player, but nothing to play on it. As <laughs> so I actually, meanly, I said, no, I don't no. have any spare no. vinyls at You're all. all you know, for goodness sake, yeah. get out there and get your own, you know. So, you know, that's, that's what the book is about, you know. It's kind of LP culture and everything around it, you know during that time when they were the single most you know, valuable thing in our lives, it seemed. Why did you choose to write it now, then? Is there any reason for that? <laughs> I, I don't know, really. I suppose it's only when a certain amount of time goes by that you're able to, to see kind of patterns in history. Yeah. You know? And, uh, you know, I, I've, uh, I've put a kind of term on it. You know, so my, my story of the LP starts in 1967 when everybody knows the LP goes back earlier than that. And it finishes in 1982, when everybody knows that the LP goes on longer than that. But I think that was the kind of, that was the prime period. Well, it's self-evident. It will, it will become self-evident as to, as to why it ends in 1982. But it starts, obviously, uh, with Sgt. Pepper. And you make the point that up till then, LPs have been sort of carriers, really. They were, you know, singles and a load of old rubbish. And, well, Phil Spencer... And was the first al- uh, group that had made an album with no singles. Yeah, I can, I can remember my first clapped eyes on this, actually. That's the actual copy. Um, for, you know, it's a mono copy... Uh, first clapped eyes on that in the, in the window of a little record shop in Wakefield called the Record Bar, a tiny little place. And I was on my way home from school. And I used to go via the record shop just in case anything had happened, you know, anything, anything new. You know, those are the days when I, I would literally go in this place every day it was open, you know, and flick through the new releases. Because you didn't know. There was no news. You didn't know. You just go there I knew there was a new record. Beatles record yeah. coming. But I don't think I knew what I was looking for. Yeah. And, uh, and there was this thing in the window, which kind of looked odd, you know. You, got, you hadn't seen anything like that before. And I, you know, I just, I rocked with surprise, you know, when I saw it. And, um, and I realised I had to have it that day, obviously. And by then it was 20 past four or whatever. And so I obviously didn't have enough money to buy it, because I think it was 32 and six. And, uh, you know, at that time, I could conduct a, a, an exhaustive, you know, um, audit of my worldly wealth by putting my hand Just in my pocket. Just put your hand in your pocket, that's right. I'm going to figure it around, that's right. Or whatever, you know. Yeah. And so I thought, I've, I've got to have this record tonight. And so I got on a bus and, uh, and went and urged this bus to go as fast as possible to where my father worked and threw myself on his mercy and said, if you give me the other pound... I'll work for you at the weekend or whatever it was. And then a race back got this and, and went home. And, you know, and there, falling apart, it might be, is the, is the, original, the original cover. And it took it home and put it on the record player. And I don't think there's any exaggeration to say it didn't come off for weeks. And uh, one of the things that was immediately apparent when you looked at it was that it was, there were very few um, divisions between the That's tracks. Right. You could tell straight away a lot you of information about just the, the, the shading of the vinyl. 
I, I, I later on discovered when I worked at, at HMV in Oxford Street that in the classical department, there used to be certain people who knew so much that they could look at a test pressing... I'll tell you what it, it was. ...of a new symphony. Band. And they could tell you, oh, it's Beethoven 7. God, I'd love to, love to have gone for a pint with them. <laughs> really, but, you know, this is, this is a verse in lots of ways. I mean, you know, it's very difficult nowadays to look at that and get past all the millions yeah. of pastiches we've seen of it. But at the time, you looked at it and thought, that's absolutely extraordinary. And also, it was the first time you'd had the lyrics on the back. Lyrics on the back. You talk very interestingly about all the, the, the kind of, if you like, the negative uh, legacy of the Beatles in, the, in that because the Beatles wrote their own songs and because they had a concept album, everybody thought they could do the same They all thought... Everybody, so everybody the, everybody the Satanic Majesty's Request, you got the, the Hollies did a record called Butterfly. There was Smiley Smile by the Beatles. See, I think, I, I think what, what people get wrong about Sergeant Pepper is this. They, what made Sergeant Pepper amazing is it was adventurous. Yeah. It was experimental. No, it wasn't. The thing that made it amazing was it was so good. <laughs> Everybody went out and did experimental things. Yeah, you call it Wit- shockingly appealing. Witness the Rolling Stones, you know, yeah. it, you know, the same summer. Yeah, yeah. Go in the studio and think, yeah. well, we can be amazing and experimental and dull, as everybody was to discover yeah. very quickly. Whereas the thing about that is it was, it's an incredibly vibrant pop record yeah. all the way through. It's very up. It's very up-tempo yeah. all the way through. And, uh, you know, it's still, it still kind of surprises me to this day. So that was the kind of... That was the starting point. When you start talking about, you know, the effect of Sgt. That, that's, you know, that's the first kind of uh, long-playing record album... And then you make the point that various other things coincided with the, with the new format, the LP, and one of them is the rise of the singer-songwriters. And there's lots of really fascinating reasons why the singer-songwriters suit the idea of the LP, don't they? People... Yeah, they, they, I, I think this, this record, which again is my, my kind of original copy, which I think has got sticker indicating it's stereo because most of them were just mono yeah. at the time. And, and this became... I, I started college round about this time. And you used to go, you'd go, if you were very fortunate, you'd be invited into the girls' hall of residence. I'm talking late 60s here. And you'd go into somebody's study bedroom, and there, propped up against their little record player, would be the songs of Leonard Cohen. Bookends. Bookends by Simon and Garfunkel. Possibly... Al Stewart's and Al Stewart Love Chronicles. Bed, Love Chronicles. You know, yeah. That was a pretty good signal. Uh, yeah. you might uh, be tea for the Tiller Man, maybe? I don't know. Uh, uh, tea for <laughs> the Tiller Man, possibly. You know. And then these records kind of... They sort of took the place of the slim volume of yeah. poetry. You know, That's true. You know, the people, it, was a, it was a sort of mark that you were... And don't forget, at this time, you had a, a sudden surge in people going to university. The baby boomers were all yeah, going to university. College, college kids, the, the college new audience. Yeah. Kids were an absolutely a vast market. That's right, that was the equivalent of the battered paperback. It was. It? it was. And again, you would, you, know, you would carry it around, you know, to show off yeah. how immensely soulful you yeah. were. And I was, I was always intrigued by these guys, like Leonard Cohen and Paul Simon and Al Stewart and all these people, because they always wrote about how disastrous their love life was. And the rest of us... But we're actually bragging about it. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) We were all sitting there going, they've got a love life. Al Stewart goes, well, there was Katie, and there was Jenny, and 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 this goes on forever. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it was all disastrous. And that was the kind of pose. This has not been achieved without some expensive spirit. And, And we were all just immensely envious. And so, you know, there's an important point in that, in that record... That's every bit as much of triumph as packaging as anything else yeah. you might look at. You know yeah. what I mean? That it was the fact that he looked the way he did yeah. that went along with the way he sounded, you know, that was all part of the new, the new LP experience. You know? Because you very often develop your, your uh, interest in these things in the record shop. You just go in yeah. there and flick through. And, and also, nothing about the LP was that the single tended to be people bought singles because they liked the music. People bought albums they like the artists. Absolutely. You know, and I think another significant thing is that people listen to them on headphones. Those, I remember those records being listened to on headphones, and you be, developed an incredibly intimate relationship with the record. 
and an understanding of the person yeah. who, 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 who... Although I have to say, one of my earliest experiences with headphones, I remember you know, in the early days of headphones, they always used to be as heavy as kind of the thing that an airline pilot would wear. Yeah, that's right. So your head would drop over. <laughs> that's right. And I remember, I remember um, trying to excite my, my grandmother, who was, who was probably born in the 19th century, with, with listening to uh, Three Blind Mice... From ten, ten years after Stonehenge. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> well, what a terrible it? record that was. Absolutely awful record. Did you buy that? I, I bought that. Yeah, record. Yeah, yeah. I bought that record. And uh, yeah, they had anybody else buy Stonehenge? <laughs> <laughs> You're lucky. And then, yeah. then the stereo would pan across so that you know, yeah. as, as, the, as the drums, the drums went across. Yeah. And she was she was not wildly impressed. No, not say. at all. Yeah, yeah. No. Now the um, where are we? The, well, the samplers were a big thing. I can remember so vividly, uh, you know, the Rock Machine Turns You On, uh, Fill Your Head With Rock, uh, Nice Enough To Eat. Who bought this? They were brilliant records, and they were, they were less than half the price of a... Of this is 15 Bob, I think, yeah. something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, compiled by a guy called David Howells, who's, uh, who I spoke to uh, for the book. And, uh, you know, this is the reason that nearly everybody of a certain age... Can, can sing Fresh Garbage by Spirits. That's right. You know. Yeah. Um, and you that's know, how a lot of them discovered Leonard Cohen, actually. Being, that's how they discovered Leonard Cohen. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, it, it had Sisters of Mercy on there. Because you know? don't forget, at the time, people like Leonard Cohen or anybody who made albums wouldn't get written about anywhere. You know, the, the, the enemy and the melody maker weren't yeah. really into that kind of thing at all. And certainly wouldn't get played on the radio. You, you know, you might have had, you know, Radio 1 that started in 1967. They didn't really do this kind of thing at all. It was still half of what they did was Radio 2. And so this, had, this was an attempt to find a, a completely new way of, uh, of galvanising this new kind of rock audience. You know? And that's the interesting thing to me about the rock machine turns you on, is that you could chuck under it, under that, you know, umbrella, all kinds of things. You, know, you can have Tim Rose. Folk you can have Blood, and, yeah, Sweat and Tears. Yeah. You can, you it didn't can really sell matter. anything as rock. Rock, yeah. You know, because once you had this, this kind of new audience... This Alternative new, underground. These people who yeah. thought of themselves... And we were all like that. You know, we thought of ourselves as sophisticated. Yeah. The, um, there's a, 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 a huge amount devoted, quite rightly, to covers of, of albums and how important they are. And it's really interesting. You look at sort of things like um, Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys and... If that was just part of marketing rather than creative. The Beach Boys made a record and think, oh, God, we need a cover. Well, look, somebody just go off on a rainy afternoon to a zoo somewhere and take a picture of them with some goats, and that'll do, you know. Whereas this was part of the creative, wasn't it? This is part of the whole concept of the album. This is extraordinary. This was designed by a guy called Barry... Well, illustrated, done by a guy called Barry Godber, who was a friend of the band. First album by King Crimson came out in 1960. This is In the Court of the... the Court of the Crimson Crimson King. King. Yeah. Fully, full title, An Observation, An observation by, by King, King Crimson. Crimson. Not pretentious at all. Boy, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and he just, he just, he did that by, apparently he just got the shaving mirror and opened his mouth, yeah. you know, and, and painted himself, yeah. you know, somehow. And, um, and this... Sold records on its own. Incredible. You know, if you, I talked to Bruce. Every Finkley. record, every record shop put it in the window, didn't they? they yeah, Ireland just issued, you know, loads of spare covers. You yeah. know, you could you could put them throughout your uh, your, your shop window, and the records just walked off the shelf. Yeah. You know, everybody bought that record, yeah. even if you didn't like it. Yeah, you liked the idea of it. You liked yeah. the idea of it. Yeah. It's quite interesting to go and read back the reviews of, of that record, because clearly the reviewers didn't really know whether they liked it or not. But they felt but they, obliged to... They had to say, it's immensely impressive. Yeah. It's, you know... It's intriguing. It's the ultimate album. Right. Yeah, All the things that people say when they're yeah. not quite clear. But... It, this came out at the same time, you know, the, the, first, the first band album. And, um, second band album. Second band album, sorry. And, yeah. um, sorry. And, <laughs> I just couldn't let that go. I wouldn't have been able to get to sleep tonight if I... <laughs> you wait till I get you home. <laughs> uh, and, and the interesting thing to me was, I remember <laughs> I bought that King Crimson record, but I also bought that. Yeah. Came out about the same time. Yeah. You know, because if you were interested in rock, you were interested in all kinds of stuff, you know, whether it was kind of rootsy 
what people would nowadays call Americana or God knows what, or, or whether it was King Crimson at, at, at the other at the other end. But the, and, the, 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 but the picture has such an it colours your impression absolutely. of the music. And if it? you you know, you, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the first the first band album, which is one of Bob Dylan's less appealing doors. Yeah, and. <laughs> Whereas that, you know, they just line them up on a, on a road near Woodstock on a rainy day, and somehow magically, it reminds me of... I don't know if people are familiar with the photographs of Matthew Brady that he took during the American Civil, Civil War. War yeah. uh, it's, it echoes that kind of look, you know. And so they suddenly look like men. Yeah. You know, they didn't look like... You know, two years earlier, everybody had been wearing... Scoop neck T-shirts yeah. and, and 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 flares and Kensington Market looms and suddenly these guys appear to be coming out of a totally different world and again the photograph grounds it grounds the record completely yeah and completely now, colours your view you make the point that it's almost cinematic you know that, that it's it, it's got much imagination in in that music it the is about the Civil War the right about the nineteenth century it's it's, as, a, it's as a the movie. movies of this it's, it's a, a movie, movie. Exactly. Exactly. yeah yeah. Uh, Although you're the person who always tells me that you've never listened to side two. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's very sweet that you mentioned that in the book. I only ever listened to side one because when I listened to side one of that record, I thought it was so perfect, I couldn't bear to turn it over in case the second side wasn't as good. Yeah. So I refused to listen to it. <laughs> this is another one. This is, the, this is the record you say, A, this is the first upmarket rock group, which is a really good point. I never thought of that, actually. And B, this is the first... Uh, album that was made by its cover. I mean, the cover really did it's sell. Right, it always strikes me. Like yeah, that. yeah, absolutely. Nineteen seventy. Yeah, this is the first Roxy Music album. It's the yeah. first Roxy Music album, and uh, you know, which I still this is controversial. I still don't think it's all that good a record, but it's a brilliant package. Plenty of time to fight with David afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> it's an unbelievable it's package, you know, because. That record has done the selling before yeah. before you've got to it, and uh, and nobody had seen anything like that at the time. And don't forget, at the time, there was very little colour in the magazines or newspapers yeah. that you read. You know, you wouldn't you weren't as conversant with images as we are now. Yeah. You know, uh, that was that was kind of revolutionary to do something like that. And uh, you know, it was Brian Ferry who had the the concept, but it was Anthony Price and various people in the Royal College of Art, whatever. You know, they got in the professionals and they got a proper model who I think was paid £15 uh, for her services that day. And, and it became the start of everything that Roxy Music were. And so everything they did afterwards had to echo that idea. And the start of, of the idea of, of, of listening to some extent with your eyes, wasn't it? Did you, did you think? I would have thought because so. Because I, I remember seeing that record and thinking, I want to know what this group looks like. Whereas if you heard the Groundhogs or you know, Rory Gallagher or something, it didn't really matter what they looked like. And we, if you have seen the Groundhogs, you were... You you were know, quite sorry you had seen pretty them. Pretty clearly. <laughs> That's true. Um, it's that start, the start of, 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 the, the, of the idea of music being a, a partly visual thing. Yeah. do you think? But, uh, yeah. Some, Sorry. Yes. I, I, this is an interesting... Uh, I, just, I just thought this is interesting, you know, that um, George Orwell's 1984. Um, you know, if you're the publisher of George Orwell's 1984, every five years or whatever, you repackage 1984, supposedly for a modern audience. Yeah. Different way of looking at... There's no doubt somebody doing it for a Trump 1984. Yeah. They're probably doing that at the moment. So 1984, the appearance of it changes absolutely all the time. And we're perfectly all right with that. Nobody changes that. Nobody, nobody ever changes that. Never changes that. Nobody would dream of no. changing that. Ever. It's absolutely sacrosanct, isn't it? It's completely yeah. sacrosanct. Uh, you know, that is... Shows you what an important that part of the package in time, is. You know, yeah. that's, what we, that's what we are drawn to. Yeah. Um, the, the, oh, yeah... <laughs> You talk about the new format and you talk about um, the new variety of music that suits that format, but you also talk about the new audience, heads. 
as, I, as you call them. And there's a two, an example of two heads here, both taken at the age of... Well, how old were we? 20, I think. I was 21. Yeah. I sent that picture of Dave not so long ago, the one on, on the right, I'm afraid it says me, and he said, I'm expecting you to burst into uh, uh, the, the opening of Dream a Little Dream of Me, which I thought was <laughs> incredibly unkind thing to say. But anyway, I've got over it now. I put one of these... I put these on Twitter the other day, and somebody said, don't fancy yours. Oh, right. <laughs> But, but it's an interesting thing that there was a whole new audience of people, heads, as you call them, you know. How, how would you describe heads? Who, well, they, who were we? <laughs> I suppose they were generally, they, they, were, they were long-haired people who lived for records. That's all they wanted to do. They lived for records and going to gigs. And, uh, you know, it's, I keep coming back to this, that, um, you know, that if you, nowadays, if you're a young, young person and you want to look fashionable, you have to invest in certain brands or you know, certain clothes or whatever. All you had to do in 1971 was nothing at all. Nothing at all. <laughs> you just had to sit in a chair and sit will a, your stubble to extend just itself. Just let it grow. That's right, you know? yeah. And hair yeah. was so important. You know what I mean? Crucial. I can't tell you. And the longer it was, the more countercultural you had been. And you, the more against the system, the longer. And you, you know, you'd get on a tube train and you'd see people with kind of similar hair. Yeah. And there would be a little bit of an exchange of... Bond know, a immediately. flicker of recognition, yeah. wouldn't there? And, yeah. uh, you know, and, uh, and so... But weren't those people marketed to brilliantly? Don't you think? You think those record companies, you know, the, the man can't bust our music. Well, <laughs> kind of brilliant way that they rounded up all people like us and, yeah. and to some extent exploited our oh, gullibility, you know. Well, well, we're all students and we all just love the idea of being against the man. Yeah, 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 yeah. Even though, you know, the man was represent, you know, representing CBS Records yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> the. I talk quite a bit in the book about, about the kind of the equipment that playing records... Were you moving coming... to a flat in North London in about 1971 and everyone's got their bedrooms and all that and you've got the biggest room in the house across the front is called the Sounds Room. Is that right? No, there, no, there, no there, hint of irony. These are friends of, friends of ours lived in Finsbury Park oh, at right. the time and uh, in quite a big, knackered old yeah. place. And, uh, and they had a room at the front upstairs that went the width of the building, pretty much. And they used to refer to that reverentially as the sounds room. And we had the same one. You would go into those rooms and you and would put on the record. The, the, only, absolute thing, the only thing in the sounds room, enormous room, would be... Probably there was a carpet. I mean, it can't be entirely yeah. sure. Uh, but there would be, you know, in the centre of the room, there would be the hi-fi. Yeah. You know, somebody's lovingly assembled, yeah. you know, collection of yeah. separates, which was judged better than anybody else in, in the house. Yeah. And then there would be a few kind of uncomfortable scatter cushions and maybe a knackered old sofa. And we would go, my wife and I, you know, but we weren't married in those days, and um, what are you doing Saturday night? Are we going around to Stephen Carroll's? We're going to listen to Cosby Stills and Nash. That's what we're going to do. That's what we... We can turn up there with a bottle of cider or a few cans or a bottle of Hirondelle, rough red wine. Yeah. And, and you listen to the Van Morrison album. Yeah. It's your evening's entertainment. And you were, you were completely happy with that. And, uh, and what interests me when I go back, I was, I was reminded of this when I was looking at Elvis Costello's book, his, his autobiography, where he talks about when he's living, I think he's in Flip City before he becomes Elvis Costello. And uh, he's living and he's sharing a flat somewhere in London with a bunch of guys. And, uh, and they, used to, they used to take it in turns to DJ for each other. You know, so you'd be able to play three records and everybody else would listen Wonderful. to the And he says, I don't even remember if we had a television. And I don't even remember whether, whether we had a television. I lived in a flat at one point at one point, that had no home comforts whatsoever, 
but it had four record players. Yeah. But that's a really interesting point, because if you think of all the other distractions that came along later, comedy is one of them. Comedy was still something that belonged to your parents' generation, with Stanley Baxter and... I suppose so. Wires, you know, and the movie industry really didn't get going in a block. No, the movie industry gets going to Star Wars. Yeah, got yeah. going in the 70s. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, and so there the weren't those other options. There weren't those other entertainment options, you know. No, not at all. An important thing. And, and also, this really important point is that... Um, if you wanted to listen to music, you had to go home to do it. Yeah. So I write in the book of a, my, one of my flatmates, Stuart, who used to have a you know, soul-crushing job as a clerk in the government uh, organisation. And he used to just store up the frustration, you know, all day. And then at the end of the day, you'd have to get on the tube... And the tube would be full of people smoking and stinking and God knows what, you know, reading the Evening Standard. And then he'd get all the way home, come up to the flat, and I could hear him in the room next to me. And I could hear this click as he turned on the record player and turned up the volume as, you know, as far as he could and then lowered the stylus onto... Uh, Onto Tres Hombres by ZZ, ZZ Top. Top. That's right, yeah. <laughs> and you'd hear this whole building. It was kind of like a spiritual bath, right? But, yeah. you, no, but the reason he did that is because he had no access to that sensory experience yeah. any other way. The only way you could get loud music out. was at home, wasn't it? You couldn't, you know, yeah. you couldn't put on really? headphones yeah. and, and listen on your way home. Yeah. So it made it a very charged yeah. thing. So, there's, there's lots about record shops in the book, which is absolutely fascinating. And this whole thing, I'm sure you've all seen High Fidelity, but the Jack Black character, and that's brilliant, where he's working in the record shop. And he, he suddenly decides he's, he's not going to sell his beef-up bootleg. He just, just feels he's not going to do it. Somebody comes in at one point and orders a Lion, asks if he's got a Lionel Richie record. He says, oh, is this for somebody in a coma? Stevie, Stevie Wonder. Oh, it Stevie Wonder, was it? <laughs> I think in a coma. I remember that. You know. And he's so snobbish. And that thing I remember so distinctly about record shops at that time is that the people who ran them hated the idea that you knew something that they didn't know. Do you remember that? Where you go and like, say, have you got so-and-so record? They kind of pretend it didn't exist. I was always, you know, at that time I was on the other, the other side of the counter. That's you what, know, you, so, you, you, you did. Uh, I, I was one of those unpleasant people. Yeah. Uh, and there's two things, two you, kinds of... You probably served me, actually. I probably, yeah. <laughs> probably sent you off the flea in your ear. Uh, you know, and there's two kinds of customer that you didn't like. You didn't like customers who knew nothing. Yeah. And you didn't like customers who knew something. Knew everything. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because it's very important that you behind the counter were clearly yeah. the high priest yeah. who, who knew more than any, anybody else. Uh, but it was, you know, I, it was an immensely um, educational time for me working in a record shop because what you realise, <coughs> and it's a thing I refer to still nowadays, People say, oh, you know a lot about music. I say, I say, when you know a lot about music, all you know is how much you don't know. You know, because you go and work in a big record shop. Yeah. You're working alongside people who know more than you do yeah. or know different from you do. And that's, that's an immensely educational thing. And it's also given me you know, a great deal of respect for how records become hits and the kind of things that, that get people's enthusiasm and also how various people are. I'll tell you what I was thinking about earlier today. When I worked in, in, in HMV, we used to, used to get, after Christmas, people would bring back things they'd been given for Christmas, you know. They didn't want them or they were faulty or something. And I never forgot, a few days after Christmas, this young woman came in and she said, I got this for Christmas and I played it on Christmas morning and it scratched. I was so disappointed. And I said, give me the bag. And I opened it. It was The End by Nico. <laughs> and I thought to myself, my God, Christmas morning? Yeah. Yeah. Ha- happy Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just going in the room to listen Enjoy. to this doomy harmonium yeah, yeah, absolutely. music. You know, dear, but, you know, that's people, people are like that. There's a lovely bit where you took back your copy of I'm a Gummer. You, you, just, I, you just I thought did, you just didn't like well, it. Well, yeah, I've got, I've got this here, actually. The, you know... There we have uh, Pink Floyd's Omagoma. Uh, comes out, I don't know, 1970, 69 or something like that. And uh, we thought it was immensely impressive at the time because it's got a picture yeah, on all the, the of all their equipment lined yeah. up on, you know, Biggin Hill aerodrome, I think. Nowadays, there are buskers performing round the corner <laughs> with more equipment than, yeah. than, than, than they had there. And I did something that I really did, which is I, I took this record home 
and there was nobody in at home. So I didn't have to go through the thing you normally did, went through when you took a record home, which was your flatmates or your family or whoever would say, what's that? And you'd go, oh, it's amazing. Yeah. I've just got the new sound set or whatever. You know. So I was on my own. So I played this record, all four sides. And at the end of the fourth side, I looked to myself in the mirror and said to myself, you don't like this, do you? You never will like this, will you? And, uh, and so I rang the record shop and said, I bought this record and I don't like it. Can, Can I, I bring, bring it, back? it back? Can I throw myself yeah. on your mercy? And because I thought, otherwise I'm going to be stuck with this damn thing. And you couldn't afford to be stuck with anything. And so they said, yeah, bring it back. And so I went and I, and I bought that instead. Legion Leaf by Fairport Convention. Very, very good Still investment. one of my favourite records Surely good to this investment. day. And every time I look at it, I think... It's a great record, but look what it delivered me from yeah. as well. Get <laughs> <laughs> away from the Pink Floyd. Oh, here are the Pink Floyd again, my goodness. Well, we, I, we, we could talk about this, but uh, there are many other things to talk about. But just briefly, you talk about The Dark Side of the Moon as being the absolute kind of apex of a long-form format, isn't it? And a lot of it's to do with the fact that people were such good listeners. People made music for people who were prepared to put in hours and hours and hours of listening to the different layers of, of sound and, uh, and, and invention. Yeah, well, this, I think there was this push towards long form. There had always been this. Because yeah. don't forget, go back to the invention of the long playing record. You know, it's invented in 1948 as a way to get a hold of a symphony on a record, on two sides of a record. Because prior to that, you'd had a pile of 78s and you'd have to, you know, change them every four minutes. Um, and they used to sell them in leather wallets called albums. Hence the expression the album yeah. today. And so there had always been, post Sergeant Pepper, there had always been this idea that rock really should be moving towards long form. You know, so this is the same year as Michael Field's Tubular Bells, which was, you know, it just, it was the triumph of long form over content. You know what I mean? It's, it's kind of a bit dull, but it goes on for a while, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. It You've does. got to give him points for keeping going. Yeah, you know? <laughs> stamina. And, uh, you know, we were t- talking about this earlier. You know, what's the only bit of Michael Oldfield's Jubilee Bells that we look forward to? Viv Stanchel. It's when our friend Viv Stanchel Viv. pipes up. Here he is. He's here. There at the end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and counts off the instruments, you know. Yeah. So it became, but at the time, people so wanted it to be yeah. true, you know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, people invested so much emotion in Dark Side of the Moon. They did incredibly. Just very briefly, this is a fantastic, the whole chapter about Donna Summer. <laughs> and uh, a, lot, a lot of which I just didn't know, just how much that affected the music market and how that changed the way records were made. Well, this is not, I was working and, in a record shop and, uh, and this, this guy came in from the Middle East. He used to run a dis- disco in the Middle East. And he used to come in and buy hundreds of records once a year. And then... Uh, when, I, when he'd come in on this occasion and I'd given him a load of records and piled up and so forth, he said to me, have you got any sex music? And I thought, well, you don't have a section called that, sir. <laughs> and, um, but this was what he was talking about, you know, because this was the big thing in the discos, you know, which was a, a, piece, of, a piece of music, um, you know, the, the main virtue of which was it went on for a long time, you know? And uh, Neil Bogart is the record mogul who signed a it. particular move. He said, I've got, I, want, "I want it long enough to soundtrack an orgy." You know, yeah. I think he was showing off. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, but but I think it's a real point of departure. This this record, because whereas Sergeant Pepper and so forth had all been about variety and range, this wasn't. This is about mood. Yeah, mood and sustaining Sustained that mood. Sustained mood. Yeah, it's the idea that that's what a record is there to do. Yeah, it's to change Completely the mood in the room. Purpose. And uh, Mike Lee's uh, Abigail's Party, which is written round about this time, and receives its first performance at Hampstead Theatre, I think, and then later on it goes on television. It starts with the terrifying Beverly, as she called, I think, played by Alison Alice Stedman, Stedman. Yeah, coming coming on stage. Lighting up oh, the like, topping up a cigarette, <laughs> and putting on a record. And what is it? 
It's love to love you, baby. You know, it's the idea that this can transform even the most, you know, kind of unpromising suburban It starts house. the whole world of kind of, of ambient dance music, yeah, doesn't absolutely. it? absolutely. There's a bit at the end uh, where you talk about two records, both actually trying to achieve the same thing, really. They're both like, two different artists, and they're both trying to produce the right situation creatively to produce the most successful and big-selling record they possibly can. One is Fleetwood Mac making Tusk, and one is Michael Jackson making Thriller. And the two methods could not be more different, could they? Well, this... Fleetwood Mac, you know, spend millions of pounds renting studios and trying at one point... They were even thinking of trying to, to, to replicate Lindsay Buckingham's bathroom. Yeah. In the, because that's where he felt most creative. He's going to build a version of his bathroom. Well, it's, cl- it's a classic case of what happens in the music business. There's, they spend a fortune on building studios and yeah. so forth. And then as soon as they went in there, he wanted to record on an old boombox. That's right. Because that got the kind of a raw sound that yeah, he wanted. Yeah. And, uh, and this, they, it took them a year to record and cost millions of dollars. And uh, eventually the story of Tusk becomes the story about how much money they spent on it. And it didn't sell anything like the earlier records. But it's a fantastic record. Mm. But it's, it's kind of awkward as all get out, that yeah. record. If you go and listen to it now, it starts with a really down-tempo song. It's not, it's not kind of front-loaded with hits or anything like that. Yeah. It's not engineered for the market. Yeah. It's a kind of two fingers to the market, really. And, uh, and then the contrast that with Thriller, Michael Jackson, you know, where the idea was... A calculated record imaginable, isn't it, it? You know, the first day of recording... You know, uh, that album, Quincy Jones announced to the rest of them, we're here to save the music business. Because, because this had come along just after disco, you know, had, had peaked and gone away. And the high point of the LP record is 1976-77. If you look at the sales, in terms of total sales. Um, whereas they, they thought there was an opportunity to do something very, very calculated. And there's nothing about Thriller that wasn't very... very Everything's the crossover market, isn't it? Everything's... The track with Paul McCartney, there's the track with Eddie Van Halen. I want a track that sounds like My Sharona by the Knack. Exactly. And it's going to have... It's going to have one of these three white guitarists are going to play a a solo on it. It's massively calculated. It's immensely successful. And it's sold by video. And you make the point that this this changes people's... At MTV, the arrival of MTV um, changes people's... Relationship with music it becomes a soundtrack to a it's an audio film. visual experience. Yeah. So totally you, different, it, and it starts to rob people of their imagination, the imagination that you yeah. would have used listening to Legion Leaf or whatever. You know, it, once you see something illustrated, illustrated, yeah, it's completely different. It's all there. So uh, it, it ends with yeah, there's the MTV, there's the arrival of the VHS, which is really interesting because that, again, suddenly people are not listening to the, the sounds room. We see probably got another device prior to the VHS, Kramer prior, versus Kramer. You know, prior, prior to the VCR. The only machine in your house that could replay something was the record player. Yeah. That was very exciting yeah. to be able to do that. As soon as you could do it with telly, that's just yeah. immensely exciting to, to most people. And it the, completely the takes over people's lives. And then, age is and then the Walkman. Walkman. So the Walkman, you know, no longer is music tethered in your, in your room. Yeah, two things with the Walkman. One, you can make your own compilations, which loads of people did. They customised music. They liked that feeling of power. And two, you take it around with you. You know, you look at all the films from the early 80s. You know, what are people doing with a Walkman? They're roller skating, aren't they? Well, once you're wearing a Walkman, there seems to be no point in just sitting in a chair. <laughs> you might as well go. So it becomes a, a, a music becomes a kind of soundtrack to an activity. It's it? like you know, you're the star. You're on the tune. Rather than you're the music. Cycling, you know? Exactly. So I think, I, think, I think those things change it. So that's, that's where I think you get the end of, the, of the, the era of the LP. And then not far away, you've got the arrival of the CD. And the CD, although we thought it was like the LP record, it wasn't at all. It wasn't at all. You know, how is it that these things, you know... Just don't have the magic. Also, you couldn't see it revolving. You couldn't see it more play. Than, yeah. than, than yeah. the records, yeah. you know. How is it we have no emotional yeah. attachment to that whatsoever? But we do... Well, you during know, the course of uh, writing but the we book, do we do went that. back and... Exactly. You went back and listened to, and the book ends with uh, the, the 15, 16 years, I think it is, that you, you, you talk about. You talk about 10 albums 
that you went back and listened to, and you talk about your how you felt about them when you first heard them, and how you feel about them now. Well, I went, I went through and listened. We've got, uh, we've I listened got, to all of them. You know, oh, we've got, um, we've got ten of them here. Take the clicker. These are ten. Run us through. Your these are ten. We'll have time for a few I'm not, questions, say, I'm not saying the greatest records ever made or, or anything like that. But you know, just ten striking records. Yeah. Van Morrison Moondance, second album. He's, it, it's wonderful to me because it illustrates how a miss is as good as a mile, you know. He's tried to make that record another 30 times since. Can't do it. Can't do it. You know, what makes remarkable records is just a magic that happens at a time, you know. And you can't go back and do it again. And you go and listen to Moondance, it's mind-boggling. It's fantastically good. How good it is. Yeah. How simple it is. Yeah. Bob Dylan, John Wesley Hardy, it's still my favourite Bob Dylan record, I think, made the same year as Sgt. Pepper. Yeah. Going in completely the opposite direction. <laughs> completely the opposite direction. And, you know, what's, Dry what's, the, and acoustic. what's the cover picture? You know, him and, and, and the kind of local handyman and, and the balls of Bengal. And there's been right. no explanation Somebody's about it. Hat at the bottom. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't like cool David Bowie. I like uncool David Bowie. Um, I love that because... He was floundering around. He was trying absolutely everything. He was writing songs for Pete and Noon. He was the doing Brothers. his Andy Warhol yeah. song. Absolutely everything. I, I, it's still my favourite David Bowie record. Um, I remember the Ramones album. This is a bit out. of comedy when it came out. I remember people... playing that in the shop. And, and the great thing about the Ramones' first album was it was a joke at the expense yeah. of the LP. Either you listen to it, and it's the first track went, one, two, three, four... One minute thirty or whatever, yeah. and then the second track started one, two, three, four. Yeah. One, he thought they can't keep doing this, yeah. and they did and keep they did. doing this. They did, and and also, was there ever a better statement of who we are than the cover of and that? That picture is fantastic. And you, and again, you can't do it again. Yeah, you know, nothing you do afterwards is as good. I love Donald Fagan's The Nightfly. Um, I love Steely Dan. But I love this even more. Uh, it's a bit of a story record, you know, based on his youth growing up in the suburbs uh, during the Kennedy era. Um, I love that cover. I love the record. The whole romantic idea of the late-night DJ. Like, yeah. Like an American yeah. graffiti. It's fantastic, isn't it? And I, when I look at the records that I play most often, it, the first burning... Well, it's not the first burning spear. It's the first island burning spear record. It's the driest reggae, reggae record imaginable. But I play it far more than Bob Marley or, or anything like that. Uh, I've come to admire enormously those Grace Jones records that she made for Ireland in the, when we were talking about in the 80s, produced by Chris Blackwell, done at Compass Point, where you know really interesting range of material. And, you know, Incredible you, records, dub on it, soul. You wouldn't, and you wouldn't say Grace song. Jones had remarkable musical talent. But it just works. Yeah, it's an you know? incredible combination. And, yeah. and um, the, you know, the second Joy Division album, you know, some records become immortal, you know, some records have immortality thrust upon them, you know. Uh, and this, when Ian Curtis died between the, the completion of the record uh, and the release of the record, uh, which no doubt just increased its mystique massively. But, you know... The two <laughs> that I still hold up as the kind of apogee of the kind of sophisticated, long-playing record. If ever anybody had any, had any hope that the long-playing record could be like the novel, you know, are uh, Randy Newman's Good Old Boys and Joni Mitchell's Court and Spark, which both came out the same year, um, both by... You know, Americans round about the same age. Randy Newman's about the South, the southern states of America. And I've spent the, the subsequent 40 years starting realising how true that record is. And it's only when Donald Trump's in the White House. Yeah, the Lester Maddox <laughs> story. You realise right. how true that record Absolutely. is. Absolutely. Uh, and Mac nobody would dare to even think what that record's about nowadays, let alone record it. <coughs> there was not a record company in Britain or in America that would put that record out nowadays. And finally, Court and Spark, because I think it's an immensely sophisticated record about what people will and will not do for love. But it's also 
a pop record. Yeah, put it on, and yeah, you do the, you know, the housework. And all those other musicians who were so envious of how, how talented she was suddenly discovered she could do jazz as well. Well, she could do anything. Yeah. And, um, but it's a useful pop record yeah. as well as a piece of art because I actually think the art's quite easy. Yeah. That's the challenge of the LP is to be the pop record as well as the art. So those are mine. My, uh, you know, ten. This, if you ask me again tomorrow, I'll give you another ten. Another ten. This whole section is at the end of the, of the book, and it's, abs- it's absolutely brilliant. 160 records reviewed very, very briefly as to whether or not they still stand up, you know. But look, we've got time for about ten minutes' worth of questions. If anybody has any questions, I say ten minutes, I put you under a lot of I think of we've questions. answered people's so, uh, questions. So, yeah, yeah, well, we're, we're, Viv Stanton, we start with Viv. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, a microphone. Um, once again, a fantastic book, David. I can't wait to read it. You haven't. You what a review. <laughs> Fantastic, but can't wait to read it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, perfect. Yeah, wish there were more reviews like that. <laughs> um, right. Um, what was I going to say? Sorry. You, you haven't mentioned how important it was and obsessive to keep your records clean and immaculate. Oh. That was the thing that it had to do. I was saying earlier to my late Mike. I'd come home and my mum would have played something, Perry Como probably, taken it off the turntable and lent it up against the side of the, of the, um, of the unit. Of the go, naked record? Yeah, oh, absolutely, my God. Bal- yeah, absolutely ballistic. Now, in honour of your great book, I have got for you a vintage Emmy Tex. Yes! Yeah. Oh, lovely. How very oh, kind. That's great. Is that for me? Oh, I remember Thank that so well. Thank you very much, Viv. Look at that. I'll take that home and, uh, you know, it does for use with vinyl plastic micro-groove records only. That's it. So I won't waste it on my 78. The fragility of records, if you, if you scratch them or you've got to jump in them, you, you couldn't you just change your relationship with the record. You couldn't quite look at it the same way again. Yeah, absolutely. My copy of the band... The band, I think across the, the front across row. the Great Divide, it jumps on, on it jumps on across. And the then great when you divide. hear it, and on if I hear it on the CD now, I think something's wrong. Oh. Really? It, it's you not said. jumping. Yeah, um, David, you talk about in the book this thing about the time that we haven't got now to listen to albums. Do you ever? Hello, hello. Do you ever sit down and listen to an album all the way through? And if not, why not? Yeah, I do. Well, I did it while writing this book, you know, because. For the section at the end of the, of the book, as Mark said, you know, I, d- I did it. I, you kind of have to make yourself do it. I, I, I went through a period where I used, to, I used to do it on a Saturday morning. Somehow Saturday morning just seemed the right, the right time to do it. And I used to post a Tumblr about it called Platter Day. Yeah. Saturday Platter Day, wasn't it? That's right. <laughs> Saturday Platter Day. Um, but, you know, it's very difficult nowadays because you just have so many choices. And I think there's no getting away from it. We're very twitchy. It's, you know, when you engage with any kind of media nowadays, you tend to do it with one hand on the button that can take you away from it. Yep. And the moment you get bored... You imagine, imagine watching Netflix yeah. without that there. Yeah. You think, oh, God, no. Yeah. You know, I'm going to have to watch yeah, whatever comes along, yeah. you know. You kind of expect control, you know, and um, and that's the kind of it's the it's the um, it's the i it's the iPod experience, the smartphone experience yeah. is that, isn't it? Completely. You know, I flick around all the time, but you know that's one of the points that I make, <laughs> I make in the book that uh, you were prepared to put in the time because the, one of the reasons was there wasn't that much else. <laughs> you know, that's not damning those those things at all. And also, you know, I'm talking about, I don't know, 1974, 1975. I had a lot of records. What was a lot of records? 300? Nowadays, somebody with a lot of records is Danny Kelly. Yeah, Danny Kelly. <laughs> or whatever, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's people who move houses, move 40 countries. of those are marquee moon, like television. <laughs> Danny, <laughs> Kelly, Danny Kelly always claims yeah. that he, he, um, he, he started, he liked marquee moon by television so much that when he, he used to find um, records in second-hand bins or whatever, when the CD came out and people were getting rid of their old vinyl, uh, he, would, he would buy them until he, he took And find home, a good home for them. Yeah, about 40 of them. That's right, he did. And used to give them to people. You know? <laughs> That's what he says. 
Another question. Anybody else? I can't see. Yes, uh, absolutely, in the middle there. Thank you. Thank you. And you um, too. Fascinating, yeah. uh, David and Mark. I um, just wanted to ask you about what, I don't know if it's the right word, the antecedents or outliers of some of the uh, those very striking album covers uh, that you described later in the 60s. When I'm, I'm what, 55 now, and I remember my, my parents, in not a very big record collection, having... Beyond the Fringe. I don't know oh. if anybody remember that. And, and that was, what, 1961, something like that. But in later life as a teenager, in the era of punk and new wave, I remember looking at that again, and love it, I loved it, still do, and thinking, they're a band. You know, they're, they're, the, way that, the way it's all shot, it's, it's sort of still a little bit before the Beatles. Right, those, really. Those and if you, if you look at the original LP, the whole thing is they are marketed. You know, it's like they've got their little... Bios, so like Dudley Moore likes girls and salt, dislikes right. being beaten up. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's it's fantastic, but it seems way ahead. And I just well, it, I, the, the, I've, I've written in the book quite a bit about comedy records fascinate me <laughs> because I remember being obsessed with Bob Newhart's driving instructor on the cruise of the USS Codfish and all this. <laughs> and Bob Newhart was, you know, was a person that Warner Brothers found completely by accident and saved Warner Brothers record. Records and the person who was leading in this in comedy records in the UK was, of course, the great George Martin. <laughs> George Martin recorded Flanders and Swan, which we all love, Flanders yeah. and Swan, and recorded Beyond the Fringe, I think. But also, he was the person who realised way ahead of his time that he could make a funny record with Peter Sellers without an audience. And so, if you go and listen to Songs for Swinging Sellers, these are masterpieces. <laughs> these records. And I often think that when Sergeant Pepper came along six or seven years later, the antecedents of it were songs, were songs for swinging sellers. It was the idea of being able to make an experience, a transporting experience, having you learned all that in, in comedy records. And, uh, of course, I think it's very sad that we don't have comedy records anymore because there's sort of no need for them. You know, Comedy nowadays comes to you in a million bits and pieces Absolutely, all the time. Got those Whereas, private eye flexi discs. You can remember those so vividly. Yeah, incredible. And it's also it used to be a social thing. You know that people would invite yeah. people around to listen to. Yeah, a you comedy couldn't record. listen to a comedy record on your own. You couldn't do it. Yeah, it was. A, it was comedy. You, 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 yeah, it's a very tense, tense moment. You know, you invited people around to listen to your whatever it was. You know. National Lampoon Lemmings. Yeah. And if they didn't like it, if they weren't laughing, you know, Wasn't it was a, a very long good way until the record. <laughs> it's a very difficult thing. <laughs> you couldn't flick it over. I you, know. Know. you had a question, I think. Yeah. I just wanted to say that I am 54 and I should have lived all of the stuff that you guys constantly talk about. <laughs> Drone I have been it. such a monumental square. I lived out in the country, I never went to. Anything. My claim to fame is I did actually see the wall at Earl's Court, and that's about it. But all of my appreciation of music and enjoyment of music has actually come from you two Egypts. Just <laughs> purely. It's second hand. And it's not, it's not been so much about the specific tunes, it's been about the appreciation of it and the observations of it, and you spending half your life going to gigs and you not going to so many gigs gigs but certainly talking about it and I have enjoyed music as much as anybody has purely about like sitting here listening to it and learning about it through that rather than being the person because well, I was a terrible very fraud. I never very, very sweet any of that. that. But Thank you very much. What can we do for you sir? What can we do for you? We've got time for one more I think and then uh, Dave will be available to sign books. Carry on. Um, fascinating. Uh, loved it. What's interesting for me is I grew up with the Smash Hits era where I was introduced to you guys. And you don't really see pop albums of the kind of late 70s, early 80s in your 10. I mean, I'm sure there's some maybe in your wider. What's your thoughts on the pop albums of those, that era? Because a lot of people think of it the singles era rather than the album yeah, era. I think it was. Uh, you know, I've I, I written quite a bit in the book about things like uh, uh, Parallel Lines, you know, uh, Blondie, and uh, we had television, Marquee Moon and so forth. Um, I, I think there was something about that kind of music that, that lent itself to a kind of short hits rather than luxuriating in the kind of protracted 
relatively sensual experience of listening to Joni Mitchell or you know, Neil Young's After the Gold Rush or whatever. So it's a kind of different state of mind. But you know, there are things like Elvis Costello's first albums and things like Ian Dury's New Boots and Panties, I still think is a masterpiece, an absolute masterpiece. And again, like Randy Newman's Good Old Boys, imagine that being done today. <laughs> Just imagine. With the front page of the Daily Mirror, wouldn't it? <laughs> It wouldn't even get that it wouldn't far. Get, it wouldn't be released. It wouldn't true, get that far. You say you can't do that. No, you, can't you, know? do. you can't do anything as yeah. strange as that. And the great thing about, you know, final point really about the LP, and you know, hats off to the record business because everybody always says, oh, these people would have done amazing things if only the suits had let them. The suits did, did let, let them. them. They did. They let them do what they want. Yeah. Because and lost huge you know, amounts of money. New boots and panties. Yeah. You know, it wasn't what any record company would have designed. Yeah. It was the biggest selling album of the year. You know, they let these people do things in a way that other areas of media and entertainment don't let people do things. So, you know. Well, all of this is contained in this fantastic book. And I have to say, it is. I'm sure you've read some of Dave's other books. Enormous amounts of insight, enormous amounts of wisdom huge quantities of very entertaining and original stories, all true, and, uh, and theories, thousands of theories, that when you read them, you just immediately think, that's true, and I never <laughs> thought of it, and I shall adopt that and pass it off as my own. <laughs> it's all in there, and as are the copies of his uh, other three books too, and Dave will be very, very happy to sign them. So it just remains for me to say thank you very, very much for coming on this evening. <laughs> Wonderful to see you, thanks. And to thank, again, David Hepworth. Thank you. Mark Allen. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Hey.